one of the ways we explain the difference between new and old power is we say, think of old power as power like a currency, right? It's the kind of power you hoard up, the more of it you have, the more powerful you are. You spend it in order to maintain that position. You think of me too as kind of power as current, right? It's a surge of energy, but it becomes more powerful the more people participate. But at the same time, it's not the kind of power you can fully control. It's power that you have to learn how to harness. It's energy to harness, and it moves and it changes as it gathers steam. Hello, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence, or in the case of today's guests, people who live and operate on the very cusp of a new horizon of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then step up and amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now it's a fairly fairly reliable fact of life that there will always be the new and the new will always replace the old. New ideas, new approaches, new ways of thinking, communicating, new tech, new platforms, new music. However nostalgic you feel about the old, the new will usually get you. And ask anyone that ever had a Nokia phone. But who's ever heard the phrase new power? Or whether you've heard of it or not, there's a pretty high chance that new power has influenced your life in some way. Anything from riding an Uber to booking an Airbnb, through to contributing to the Me Too movement or the Extinction Rebellion movement. All these things fall under the banner of new power. So what is new power? Well... Unlike old power, which you know is traditionally driven by command and control, it's like it's a top-down force. New power is open, open source, collaborative. It's usually tech-driven, and if it's used correctly, new power is probably the most influential tool on the planet today. The fact that in under a year, from the age of fifteen to sixteen, Greta Thunberg can go from protesting alone outside Parliament to mobilising millions of people in protest around the world is a testament to that very fact. So how do we harness it? How, how, do we, how do we step into new power and use it to make it work for our businesses, our organisations, our beliefs? Step forward my next guest, Jeremy Hymans. Entrepreneur, political activist and author of the book New Power, how power works in our hyperconnected world and how to make it work for you. Not unlike Greta, Jeremy started his activism very young, aged eight, in fact, very young. And by the age of 12, his first steps into new power involved trying to stop the Gulf War, as you do, armed only with a fax machine. Now, history may have had different plans there, but unfazed, Jeremy went on to form GetUp, an Australian political organisation. And following the success of GetUp, in 2007, he went on to co-found Avaz.org, which is an online activist network that now has over 40 million members across the globe. Taking what he had learnt there two years later, and now based in New York, he co-founded Purpose, a social impact agency working alongside brands such as Google, Starbucks, the World Health Organisation, developing the strategies, campaigns and tech to help brands such as those thrive in a new world, a world fueled by currents of attention rather than currency, and we'll, we'll get into that, and letting go of control rather than tightening your grip. Now, if, like me, that sounds in equal parts terrifying, 
and exciting. Stay curious. New power isn't coming. It's already here. It's already woven deep into the fabric of all of our lives. It's not a question of when or if. It's a question of how well we use it. Now on that, in this episode, we jump into the four vital things to consider before launching a new movement, vision or community, in particular using tech as the driving force. What every organization needs to learn from the Occupy Wall Street movement, which may feel like you know it's long gone, but the lessons are still here to be learned, including why you need to occupy yourself before you get occupied. How to reach the people you're targeting, and once you get to them, how to set off the spark that drives them to participate. Now, this one is huge. It's one thing getting people's attention, but once you can get them bought in enough to your ideas that they then start spreading them off their own volition, it means that you don't have to reach the edge of your own will, your own intent, your own energy. It creates a life of its own. How new power is enabled by more than just tech. Yet the the tech has changed, but alongside it, so have we. And most importantly, how old power still has a place in this brave new world. Panic not. Which parts of structure and control, I can feel my whole body relaxing, structure and control, we need to hold on to. Like seeing actual doctors rather than self-diagnosing on the internet at 2am, cue my head hanging in shame. And how to apply them in a world where the power now belongs in the hands of many rather than just a few. As, as I'm recording this, this morning, we're deep into the COVID-19 pandemic. Over 1.6 million cases and climbing. Thinking back to this interview, and it was, only, it was only a few weeks ago, and now knowing the world that we're going to be launching it into tomorrow, it's interesting to reflect on how relevant understanding new power has become. You know, it felt very relevant at the time, hence the interview, but now the need for this has taken on a whole new meaning for me. Any leader, and I'm speaking to a lot at the moment, any leader that now needs to motivate and harness the collective power of their teams remotely needs new power. Any organization that previously relied on face-to-face interaction and now needs to pivot into engaging or creating online communities has to understand new power. Anyone isolated, struggling with loneliness and leaning on the support of online communities of friends or like-minded groups is grateful for new power. And the governments themselves, as they try to spread community awareness and participation in reducing the spread of the virus, are banking on new power. We may have felt we, we needed or had more time to understand this and to try and consciously and responsibly harness this new force. But maybe we don't. Maybe this is the moment. Maybe this is the pivot point when new power finally comes into its own. On that note, I will leave you to sit back or head out for your blissful 30 minutes of the outside world. Get some sunshine on your face and enjoy my conversation with the force of nature himself, Jeremy Hines. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy Hymans. Thank you, Julie. So let's just kick off. There's a question I'm asking at the moment because I'm just fascinated about the ideas. People that have incredible ideas, the kind of ideas that they find that resonate with them. So what's the most influential idea that you've heard recently? Well, you know, I'm always very interested in ideas that are about um, 
expanding people's participation, right, in all aspects of society. And, you know, it's a big theme of the work that uh, we do on new power. Uh, I'm really interested in the proposals that are circulating right now in the US, um, which is not a new thing, but I think could be very powerful about putting workers onto company boards. So ways that you could uh, allow uh, some of this might be policy-based, um, some of it might be just kind of voluntary, um, the people who are on the front lines of companies to actually participate in their governance, which I know is the sort of idea that could make people feel very uncomfortable, but it's also an idea that I think actually makes, um, that, that I think actually um, has huge potential to resolve some of the internal contradictions that, that we're seeing, uh, you know, in, in business, in capitalism, um, that are driving a lot of the resentment right now that we see in our politics. So these are the kinds of things that I think are really interesting solves um, to buy people in, right, to, um, uh, to businesses in ways that really expand their role and their participation in them. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I've just flipped through to the back of my notes here because one of the questions I was going to ask you actually towards the end of the interview was about that participation piece and how sometimes the more people participate, the messier and more distorted the movement or the purpose or the, the vision becomes. How do you, you know, have you learned anything in, in everything that you've observed about how you engender participation without it getting so messy that nothing gets done? Yeah, I mean, this is always the key question, but I think, you know, people tend to assume that, you know, you've got one of two options, right? Either it's... Uh, Either it's going to be anarchy, and as soon as you ask people to get involved and participate, you know, be it in the workplace, be it in politics, anywhere, that you're going to lose all control. Um, or, you know, it's you've got to keep the lid on everything and you've got to control everything. And actually, I think the most interesting uh, and promising space is in the middle, right? And the language we often use to talk about this is how important it is to learn how to structure for participation. And a lot of the work we do on New Power is really about that. Uh, you know, the, some of the most successful models uh, that we've seen, you know, are very intentional about where people are asked to participate, where they're not asked to participate, how you create an environment where people have the right incentives to be constructive rather than destructive in the way that they participate. And so there's very much, I think there's a lot of nuance in that. And that's actually where I think um, the biggest upside is. So we can, I'm sure we'll unpack this as, as our conversation proceeds. And where does um, boundary setting sit with that? Just just question came up for me then. Because you would have to set expectations, right? That not every recommendation you make will be followed through on. These are, these are the rules of engagement, basically. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, there's a company that we talk about in our work on New Power, um, it's called Local Motors, a really interesting company that is basically, um, it's sort of 3D printed cars um, that where there's an involvement from a big community of enthusiasts, many of whom are engineers or people with relevant professional training and experience. And essentially, they've built this whole model, right, where people help to design the cars. And in doing so, they're also, of course, qualifying demand for a particular kind of car, right? Because these are sort of often specialist vehicles and all the way through to, you know, helping to market them. 
And so what's so striking about this is when we really got into the detail of how they'd done this quite successfully, you know, one of the th things that stuck with us was the expression that one, the Jay Rogers, who's the CEO, used, which is it's all about, you know, drawing the box tightly, right? So they're very clear with that community of people. Okay, this is exactly where we need your input. And these are the parameters, right? The wheel's got to be this big. The, um, you know, the, uh, the, the overall economic uh, footprint of this has to be that much. And in doing so, um, there's enough room for people to express themselves, to have agency, to be creative, to participate, but you're also not getting stuff that is either totally extraneous or not constructive, right? So a lot of the work, you've also then got to establish a lot of trust with that community, right? Because people are going to be very responsive to that. Um, in a funny way, one of the things that happened with local motors was they were they were actually asking for so many things um, from the community that there was a bit of pushback where the community actually said, well, what? I mean, don't you guys have a job? Aren't you guys doing some of this? So so when you get it right, you know, there's a really interesting balance and dialectic um, between, you know, control and agency, um, how you get the right participation. But they built a whole business model around that. Um, and there's lots of examples at different levels um, of those kinds of things being successful. I love that phrase, bring, bring people into the box, but then draw the box tightly. Yeah, like draw absolutely. The, the parameters of it tightly. Just want to flip backwards, um, just because I'm very curious. You, you started as an activist when you were 12 years old, is what I have read. And you were traveling around the world, meeting world leaders, Nobel Prize winners, talking about third world debt. What was the, all I could think about was what, what was the ground zero of that? Like, how did that, how did that begin for you? Because that's very early. Yeah, believe it or not, it actually started when I was even younger, when I was about eight. Uh, and uh, yeah, look, I was a very, as a passionate kid, I cared a lot. I worried a lot, frankly, about, you know, uh, things like what was then in those days called the greenhouse effect, which of course we now know as climate change, uh, nuclear proliferation, a whole bunch of stuff. Not not super normal for a kid of that age. But I got involved in this um, kind of funny late Cold War, you know, uh, group of kids who would sort of travel the world as like peace ambassadors. And we got to meet incredible people um, in the course of that. Um, and I think I was motivated, you know, from a combination of kind of idealism, like a belief that, uh, you know, that anyone could change the world, you know, the same kind of idealism that you see in the youth climate movement today, but also, frankly, the same panic <laughs> that you see and the same concern that you see in the youth climate movement, right? The version of that for me was, you know, was, was the set of things that were happening in the, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s um, uh, that for me were, were worrying me. And then I think the family context, um, my parents never like pushed me into that, quite the opposite. But I think I'd had a, an upbringing that was very grounded in the idea that, um, that uh, injustice can arrive at your doorstep. So my father's story is he was a, he's a Holocaust survivor. He was born in hiding during the war. And that story was so central to my childhood. And I think the lesson of that story was uh, you know, was that things that might have felt very distant to a kid growing up in Sydney, uh, you know, in the 80s <laughs> uh, and 90s, you know, um, felt very real to me based on that experience. 
And I just kept thinking you would have, well, you would have had to, I would assume, live in a house where those kind of conversations were welcome. Like the conversations about what was going on, ideas, a sense of agency, because not many eight-year-olds have that kind of sense of agency that I can do something about this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite sure where that bit came from, uh, you know, the uh, but it was there, you know, and, and so when I see the the activists of today, you know, the, the the Gretas, and it's not just Greta, there are so many kids, I've met some, uh, of course, from the Australian uh, movement, and on many other issues, on issues like gun violence here in the US where I live, uh, you know, you, you see that same spark that like that same belief. But I think today, that's a much more well-informed belief than it was for me like for me as a kid growing up in sydney there was not that much i could do to shape the world really right there was no internet to reach you know huge numbers of people globally i didn't have the speed the scale the density of networks that i could access now today you get a girl similar to me much more courageous than uh, than a greta who goes starts in sweden but now kind of has helped us for a movement that is completely transnational right and is tens of millions of people. And so that, that I think, is a, a phenomenon that we, we call a new power phenomenon and is, you know, is, is very clear from, um, you know, a very clear difference from when, when most of us were growing up. And your tool of ac- activism was the facts, right? Which... Yeah, well, the, my first tool was the facts. It was a pretty, pretty kind of lame kind of lame tool. I love right? that. I, I just I just had visions of a, you know, of a young kid with a fax machine just with a look of determination on his face. How did you how did you use the fax? What was the Well, you know, the the story that I that I tell the funny the funny example is when in the first uh Gulf War um I uh in the first Gulf War um just before the Gulf War I tried to stop the war by getting on the radio in Sydney which again is not a super normal thing for a kid to do, uh, you know, got, got interviewed on the radio and said, listen, everybody send a fax to uh, uh, the hotel in Geneva where um, the U S secretary of state and the Iraqi foreign minister were meeting just on the, uh, just on the eve of the war, fax them and tell them to stop the war. Now one fax machine in Geneva, you know, uh, you know, is is bandwidth constrained, right? Uh, so there's only so many so many people I could reach with that message from Sydney Radio, and only so many uh, faxes that could ever go through one fax machine to send a message that the world was watching. So obviously that that didn't work, um, but but it's a good it's a it's a useful analog because it shows how much has changed, right? Uh, and the rest of my career, I've done a lot of work, you know, mobilizing people digitally and engaging people to take action. And, and the scale that I've been able to operate on today, you know, with today's tools is, is obviously very different. Well, you were born at the perfect time almost in so much as, you know, you take that frustration with the limited bandwidth of a fax machine and then you have, you know, the rise of the digital world combined with where you were at. And, you know, you went on to co-found Avaz as well as GetUp, which is an Australian political organization and Purpose. Um, which builds and supports movements for an open, just and habitable world. I, we're here today to talk about new power, so I, I really want to get into that. In all those things that you've done, so you've gone from fax machine to the digital world comes along to you know a, a various iterations of trying to use tech for scale, to get movements and ideas to move at scale. What have you learned about how power shifted? Because you've called it new power, so obviously there's been a transitional shift there. 
Yeah, so we call it new power not because uh, movements are new or bottom-up networks are new either in politics or in business, but actually because um, the fact that we all now have in our hands this these means of participation fundamentally impacts um, the scale, the speed, uh, the density of participation and creates whole new models. You know, one example that I sometimes use is, is you think of Airbnb, right? So Airbnb has now had a massive impact, as we know, on the housing and rental markets in many cities, like it or not, right? Um, without buying a single square foot of real estate. Now, in the, you know, in a previous era, there were, you know, you, you know, you could get a catalog or in the mail, right? Every, you know, every season. And that would have a bunch of apartments in it that you could, swap with others, or you could do something similar to what Airbnb does today. But of course, <clears throat> you could never get the kind of network effects and the scale that Airbnb got that way. So those catalogs were lovely, but they had no impact on the overall shape of a market, right? And so that's an example of, I think, what's so new about these dynamics. And, um, and we see it everywhere, right? And so what our work on New Power is about is really about helping people develop both the skills and the mindset required to be effective in a world of this kind of ubiquitous participation and engagement. And you've said that something more fundamental has changed than just new tech, which I thought was which I thought was really interesting yeah. because you've got new tech, but then you've got something else that it's come into contact with and just exploded. Yeah, I mean, so it, it's far more than new tech because I think what's happening is that, and this really comes back to this conversation we're just having about you know kids growing up is you've got a very different set of expectations um, about how if you're a young person who's connected in this way, how you expect to be able to shape the world, and it's not just young people by the way, it's everybody, right? When you give people these tools, so you have a different outlook and attitude toward institutions. You're going to be a lot more impatient with slow, lumbering, unresponsive command and control institutions, be that your local bank or your your local government, right? Uh, you are going to have the ability and, and the expectation that you don't need to rely on the middleman. You think about the legions of kids today with literally hundreds of thousands of followers from their bedrooms. You think about this massive explosion of content and creativity uh, that reaches all corners of the world. You think about the way people can crowdfund for their own products and ideas today. So those things aren't just um, changes in technology. They may be enabled by technology. They're changes in people's um, norms, values, expectations, and that shapes a lot of other dynamics. And it's part of why the workplace is changing so much, right? It's part of why there's so much frustration with politics right now. I think a lot of these dynamics kind of have the same ingredients underpinning them. How, let's focus on movements for a second. We're, we're going to get into how this impacts business and, and participation, but I just want to stick to movements. Can you give me um, can you give me some examples of, of some movements that are really tapped in to this? Yeah, well, look, you know, I think the Me Too movement's a really interesting example because it's such a classic new power movement in the sense that. Um, you know, you can't knock on the door of the Me Too movement and speak to the head of it, right? Because it's a leader, it's a movement of many leaders. It is not a traditional, it's not an organization at all, right? 
but it's having a big impact socially and culturally, and it's engendering a lot of change of different kinds. It may not be quite the kind of change that you can um, measure by, by what we would think of as old power standards, but it's very powerful, right? Um, I might add, a lot of the movements you see that we would say rely on new power are not positive at all, right? So, you know, I would say the Me Too movement is very positive, but you think of something like the anti-vaxxers. The anti-vaxxers are doing very similar things. They are connected crowds who are spreading their ideas sideways, rapidly, right, in very effective ways, so much so that they're undermining years of progress on getting people um, to vaccinate their children, causing public health crises in places like New York, where I live. We had a measles epidemic earlier in the year. What they're deploying there is new power, right? That ability to, um, to mobilize, to get mass participation and peer coordination. Um, and that, you know, that is scary. And so I think for all the positive uses of new power, you're seeing a lot of very negative uses. And our work is not about saying new power, good, old power, bad. Our work is really about saying, if you're anyone working in an institution or in a startup or you know, you're, you're, you're anyone who's trying to get ahead in the world today, you can't just rest on your old power skills, right? The skills that are based on what you know, what you own, what you control that others don't, your, your skills that are based on command and control, you've got to have this new set of skills that we describe as these new power skills. And we were just talking um, before we went to air about coronavirus and the fact that, you know, both of us to, to different degrees are kind of sat back and just watching right now, trying to pull out the pieces that are hysteria, the pieces that are just make a good news cycle, the actual facts and information that impact how and where we travel. What's, what have you learned about how to step back from different movements, take a look at them with a critical eye and decide which ones are worthy of your attention, intention, and obviously action? Yeah, well, I mean, so at Purpose, Purpose is the company that I run. Uh, it's a public benefit corporation, and our work is about uh, helping organizations kind of transition from old power to new power and about supporting movements around the world. And so we, you know, we were very clear about what we stand for, right? We stand for a more open, just and habitable world. So we are often looking for opportunities to use new power to advance that, that kind of world, right? And it's actually at a moment where a lot of those values are under threat. You think of the coronavirus, the coronavirus is a, is a kind of a double virus, right? There's, the, there's the, the epidemiology of it, but then there's the virus of misinformation, the virus of prejudice that is spreading around the world, right? And so um, what Purpose tries to do is in, in those moments, we try to mobilize action, you know, in favor of compassion, tolerance, uh, facts, you know, those old fashioned things. And, and that's kind of what. That's so retro. Across, that... Exactly, right? Across many issues, climate change, refugees, immigration, gun violence. You know, we do that around the world. We, we have an office now in Sydney. But we also do it in, we have offices in the US, in, in Europe, um, in Brazil, in India, in Kenya, um, and, and other parts of the world. It's, it's just something that I've been thinking about a lot at the moment, which is for your, for your everyday person, with the, the amount of outrage and fear and drama in the media and around a lot of topics that are important to our families, to our everyday lives, what are the, some of the, and you know, this may be an unanswerable question, but what are some of the 
the indicators to watch out for when you see a news headline, when you see some clickbait, when you look at the front cover of a newspaper to go, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on that, but I'm going to be watchful because that looks like the hysteria is getting out of control and the facts are kind of somewhere down the bottom. What are the core things that people can be looking for so we can avoid getting caught in this hurricane of emotion as and taking no action, no useful action? Yeah, well, I think it's important to have a sense of the broader context. So you're likely to be seeing that kind of information in social media. But it's important to remember that the platforms that we use profit from misinformation. They may not say that explicitly. Sometimes they do. You know, in, in Facebook, for example, they're explicitly accepting political ads that, that, that have lies and misinformation in them. Um, and they're not apologizing for that. Sometimes they say, well, we ban ads that do that, but they certainly can't really police the content that does that or, or they're not doing it effectively. So, you know, that's an economic incentive, which means you should be very skeptical that uh, the social networks themselves are going to regulate this um, this stuff. You know, secondly, it's important to know that if something is spreading quickly, it's spreading quickly probably because it's provocative, because it generates an intense emotional response. That could be fear. That could be hate. Sometimes that's love or solidarity, but more often than not, it's a negative emotion. So, uh, you know, the other thing to know is that falsehoods actually spread more quickly than facts. And the research has borne this out. This isn't an assertion. It's, it's borne out in the research. So something's spreading quickly. If something's provocative, there's a good chance it's not true. <laughs> or if it's not if it's not true, that it's 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 very slanted in some way that is important to understand. Um, so that's just the context in which we live. Um, you know, th- those are the sorts of things people should start to keep an eye out for. Because life isn't like that. You know, it's it's not black or white. Nothing is ever you know this perfectly crafted idea. It's whatever idea is taking hold. There's going to be grey areas in it. There's going to be you know areas of nuance to explore so if it seems that black and white possibly there's more there that we haven't grasped absolutely and uh the this era is not a great era for nuance unfortunately but because of the way ideas spread which is something we talk about a lot in our work talk to me about the shift from currency to current yeah so when one of the ways we explain the difference between new and old power is we say Think of old power as power like a currency, right? It's the kind of power you hoard up. The more of it you have, the more powerful you are. You spend it, um, uh, you know, in order to maintain that position. Think about a Harvey Weinstein as a classic example of a kind of person who really understood old power, right? I mean, he would punish his enemies. He would reward his friends and his protectors. He stayed on top of this industry for years, despite the fact that people knew he was a predator. So that's Harvey Weinstein, right? You think of Me Too, which I mentioned earlier, as kind of power as current, right? It's a surge of energy, but, you know, it it becomes more powerful the more people participate. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's not the kind of power you can fully control, as we were talking about, right? It's power that you have to learn how to harness. It's energy to harness, right? Um, And it moves and it changes, right, As 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 it gathers steam. So very different skills, harnessing the current versus kind of capturing the currency. I'm going to play with that idea of, of currency for a second. Does, not sorry, currency, current. In order to kick off a current, 
do you need a particular kind of spark? Is there a, a, a spark that's necessary to get that current moving? And then obviously you've got to manage it from there. Yeah, like there's no kind of, um, there's no sure way to do that, right? There's a lot of alchemy in, in this uh, work. But, but a lot of, you know, a lot of that is about kind of having the conditions in place when you do try to spark the current, right? So there are four things we sort of ask people to think about. One is like, do you actually, for trying to spark a current, do you actually need the crowd, right? Um, when, you know, in order to help you achieve an objective, or are you sort of using people as more of a stunt, right? We tell this very funny story in, in the book, of course, about the Bodie McBoatface fiasco, where a, you know, British government agency asks the crowd to help them name a ship that they'd built. And the crowd comes back and says, Bodie McBoatface. And they're sort of stuck and they don't know what to do. And uh, that was an example of where they didn't really need the crowd, right? And so when they got an answer they didn't want, right, they sort of floundered. The second thing you need is legitimacy. So if you're trying to spark a current that you don't have legitimacy with the people you're trying to mobilize, it's going to be really hard um, because people are going to think you're fake or inauthentic. So you need to cultivate that. You need to build trust with the people that you're engaging. So you'll find that the people who really start those currents often are the people within networks who are trusted um, and who've spent time building legitimacy. The third thing you need is a, is a kind of healthy attitude toward control, right? And so as we've talked about, it isn't anarchy you know, or dictatorship, it's that space in the middle. Are you willing to give up some control within parameters you set? Because if you're not willing to give up any control, you'll, you'll not get any of the energy that new power kind of affords you. And then finally, you've got to be willing to commit to that work. So again, there's no point starting something uh, and then not maintaining the interest and the engagement of the people that you've swept up into this current. So that's about a, a commitment to doing it. It's about building a sort of muscle where you can go back and continuously engage people rather than do it sort of on, on, on a one-off or episodic basis. There's no such thing as a set and forget movement. No, certainly there's lots of people trying doing that, but that doesn't really work very well. Talk to me about Anna Hazare. So Anna Hazare is a, was a really interesting figure. He's a, a Indian anti-corruption activist in the Gandhian tradition. And very um, these days he's in his early 80s. We tell a story in the book about Anna Hazare as a 77-year-old who goes on a hunger strike against corruption in India. It's a pretty significant national figure. Um, but, you know, he goes on this hunger strike um, he initially starts with the very traditional repertoire of just the hunger strike, hoping that that will inspire others to join him. That's not quite enough. The next thing he does is he asks people to send him an SMS in support of the hunger strike and essentially send a message to the government. People do that in relatively modest numbers by Indian standards. About 80,000 people do that. Then he changes his tactics and he says, leave me a missed call if you support my campaign. Now, missed calls are an existing kind of online or sort of mobile behavior in India where in order to save um, the costs of making a call, um, you if let's say you're on your way to meet someone and you want to let them know you're on the way or you um, just want to send a message to someone that you're thinking about them, you, you call them and hang up. So you don't actually ever pick up the phone. Now, this might seem like a, a strange behavior, but it's hugely ubiquitous throughout India. When he asked people to do that, he got 35 million missed calls. And it ended up sparking this massive movement because that, those were all phone numbers he then had. 
And he then went back to those people and got hundreds of thousands of people to turn out onto the streets in Delhi and elsewhere, creating a major moment around corruption in India and bringing about some legislative change as well. So it's just a good example of, you know, a really effective use of new power, but also an understanding that he really came and he went to where people already were, which is often the mistake people make when they do this kind of work. They expect people will come to them and, and they, they, they typically won't, right? But he really, you know, understood that if you want to move people, you have to, um, you have to go to where they were and people were already leaving these missed calls. So he hopped on the back of that behavior, made it incredibly easy for people to participate and use that to build a movement. It also, it speaks to something that I've been noticing quite a lot recently with successful businesses, successful startups, and also successful movements, that starting with an easy yes, like if you make the first yes easy enough, that first step, then you can build momentum from there. But if your first yes is too hard or too difficult, takes too much time, energy, bandwidth, et cetera, then you're just not going to get any momentum. The, the current isn't going to start flowing. Right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, making it easier, lowering the barrier to entry uh, is critical. And that applies whether you're an activist trying to mobilize people or whether you're a business trying to build one of these new power online communities the way Airbnb did. What's the, what's the best idea or the best movement that you've seen that, that went nowhere? that you really thought would take hold. I'm just curious because we're talking about, you know, things that work, things that don't work. The fact that sometimes this is predictable, sometimes it's not. Which one did you go that is going to, you know, that's going to go gangbusters. We're going to be talking about this 10 years from now and then it just fizzled. Mm. I don't know. I feel like the, um, the whole climate movement is a little bit of an example of that, right? Where it's a massive movement and yet we haven't been able to find a formula that turns that energy into real change. Um, that's enough to face the massive power interests on the other side, um, or to get governments to, to 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 take action. So I think, in a way, that's a larger example of the dynamic that you describe. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, it's a very big, complex, long-term issue that unfolds in uh, in a kind of different way to the way a very acute crisis unfolds where human beings tend to have a, a much more natural, urgent response. Um, so it requires a lot of collective action um, and coordination and short-term sacrifice, uh, which is really hard for, for people to do. You've also said that, you know, new power is not your Facebook page, which, which again, I loved because that feels very true for me because it's just another way of shouting at people, right? Is just expand on why, why, you know, your Facebook page is not a form of new power. Well, look, I mean, a lot of people are using social media the same way they used, uh, you know, the press release just to talk to people, right? Um, it's not two way. It's not genuinely participatory. It's just a platform to talk at people. Uh, you know, I, I to, to give you an extreme example in, in the TED talk I gave about new power, I mentioned that, you know, Bashar al-Assad, the, the dictator of Syria, even he has a Facebook page. Right? Uh, but, but that, you know, it doesn't tell you a lot uh, about his, his attitude to, to power. So, you know, the uses of social media that you see that are effective at new power are where the person um, 
you know, with the page or whatever is really effective at creating trust and intimacy and a two-way connection with their crowds. And I think in that respect, we have a lot to learn from uh, from kids today because kids today have just grown up with this skill set, right, of being transparent with their followers, of building trust, of asking them to get involved in the things that they care about. And they're highly skilled, a lot of these kids, at, at, at doing exactly what, um, you know, exactly what you need to do um, to really get the benefits of using these new tools. It's almost inviting, inviting some kids onto your board as well, within the box. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of these youth climate councils are taking off now where companies are bringing young people onto the, you know, to, to create councils to advise them on these long-term intergenerational questions. I think from a platform point of view, that's, you know, from understanding the different platforms and how they work, that's genius. Um, I want to go back to the beginning. I just want to loop back around, you know, in the beginnings of this conversation and we've, we've kind of come at New Power in a variety of different ways. We talked about how more participation often means more coordination and more mess and less things getting done and how you can avoid that. Just talk to me about Occupy Wall Street because I just think that that is one of those examples where from the people from the outside, myself included, we were like, what happened? Like it was, <laughs> it was looking so good. What happened? Yeah, well, I think it's a great example of the strengths and limitations of, of this stuff. But also you've got to have the right um, – you've got to understand what new power is good and uh, is good for and what it isn't. So you think about what Occupy Wall Street was. It was this you know, this this totally decentralized – uh, movement, right? Um, there was no formal leadership and they were extremely averse to any traditional leadership structures. And of course, um, where it started, um, Zocotti Park outside in Wall Street, they they had these general assemblies where, you know, for hours and hours, people would debate things and try to form consensus and everybody's voice was equal and everybody's uh, everybody got to speak and they went on for hours and hours and and you know ultimately their inability to make decisions um, you know hampered the movement no doubt um, and in many ways these new power movements are very effective for creating uh, a burst of energy for increasing the salience of a set of issues but in order to really bring about long-term change you then need to kind of blend that with old power right you need to create institutions you need to navigate old power structures uh, the the you know the occupy wall street movement was very um reluctant to do that now you could look at that as a failure but you could also say well in some ways the occupy wall street movement was a success in the sense that they put the issue of inequality and corporate greed sort of on the agenda in a totally new way and if you look at the candidacies of many politicians that were inspired by that, the emergence of very popular ideas uh, around a focus on inequality by people like Piketty, that all kind of had its origins in the um, Occupy moment. So I think that um, we shouldn't expect movements to become institutions any more than we should expect institutions to become movements. But when you get a kind of relay, a kind of exchange, a kind of alliance between those two, then sometimes that's where you get real change because you get the the, the, the current of new power, but you also have the currency of, of old. We talk about that blend and how to achieve that blend a lot in our work. Because that's the, that would be the challenge, right? You, to add some institutional rigor to it without killing the current, without killing right. and some, the very spark. It, 
Exactly. And sometimes that actually means instead of trying to turn Occupy into Occupy Wall Street Inc., right? Actually, it's more about uh, kind of alliances between old and new power forces. But, but you don't necessarily want the new power to kind of morph into old power because by that point, to your point, you've lost, you've lost that energy. Who's doing it well? Can you think of any examples right now that you're watching where you think they've really got it, got it good? Um, well, you know, we use some, some, some interesting examples in the, in the, in the book, you know, one is, uh, Ted, the Ted brand is a really interesting example because they, they've got like kind of a very effective old power strategy. They've got this very exclusive conference that only, you know, only very influential people with real money can get into that creates a lot of prestige, whether you like it or not, it creates, um, a sort of admiration, um, and cachet. But they've also built this incredible new power kind of um, arm to what they do. These TEDx conferences, thousands of volunteer translators, this big community of organizers um, who sort of disseminate and spread the idea of TED, but in a way that is much more new power than the the conference itself. Uh, so that has been very effective. And when they added that new power bit, you know, when they they brought TED's talks to the world when they introduced the idea of TEDx, the value of TED itself massively increased. Right? So that's a good example of a model that's blending old and new power very effectively. Where do you see that blend or how do you see that blend shifting the media landscape, you know, media companies, the provision of news, where we source news? What's the future? I mean, take everything that you've learned from watching movements, what, you apply it to the media. Where do you see the future of that laying? I think there's still enormous value in the sort of old power expertise of journalists. Um, and I think some of the models that are most interesting are ones that are trying to combine that with a deeper sense of ownership by the reader. So I'll give you two examples. One is The Guardian. The Guardian, uh, you know, still a very old power model, basically. You know, journalists write things, we read them. They're, they're, they trade in, uh, you know, in facts and evidence and research. But they're kind of broadened the conception of what it means to be a Guardian reader. So they really changed their model from a subscriber model to a member model. And members are really people who get to be more invested in the mission and values of the, of the Guardian newspaper. They are often asked to take part in certain campaigns that reflect the Guardian's values, even sometimes to contribute to research and investigation. Um, so they're trying, they've got a long way to go, but they're trying to kind of create a different power structure in a sense, between reader and, and, and newspaper. Similarly, there's a publication that's very interesting to check out called De Correspondant. It's a, it started in the Netherlands, and now there's an English language version as well. And they really leaned into this, and they, they basically crowdfunded to start. It was the biggest crowdfunding campaign ever for a media entity. And then they really wove their readers in to the work of journalism without sacrificing the quality of that journalism. So, you know, every reader of De Correspondent has a profile um, where they list their expertise. And then if you're a doctor, then you're going to be asked by the medical or the health uh, reporter. Um, you're going to be given a heads up on the pipeline of stories and there'll be ways you're, you're asked to participate in research or in, um, in, the, in the development of the piece. But they do it in a way that's really r rigorous and, and high quality. That's a really interesting model if you overlay that onto politics. I don't know exactly what it looks like, but it's, it would be a very interesting change in the structure of how we do politics, how we do governance. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know this is the big challenge ahead of us now, right? Is how, you know how do we um, change the institutions of, of governance that are that are, were built for a much less responsive, less participatory world, for a world where people are just so hungry to participate and expect to participate. They feel like they have a right to participate at a wholly different level to just voting every four years. And I think that's going to be really tricky in the years ahead because institutions are hard to change, but we're going to have to grapple with that. Let's take that one step further. If um, if a candidate came about, and your answer could well be, I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole, but if you if a candidate came about that you that you believed in and they sat you down for a coffee and said can you just give me some advice as to how to run this campaign a presidential candidate can you think of any of the core advice you would give them yeah i mean look the the there are candidates you know uh, all over the world that are very smartly using new power now i don't always agree with them but they're really doing it very effectively they're building crowds. They're raising huge amounts of money in online donations. They're finding smart ways for people to get involved in their campaigns. They're getting the right mix of um, structure, right, and and agency for supporters. Um, we talk about different models for, for, for doing that. Um, the Obama model is very different to the Trump model, but both were actually very effective at using crowds, right, to help get them elected. Um, what I'd actually say is the bigger challenge is then bringing that into government. So we have far fewer examples of politicians using new power um, as a tool of governance. And then what happens is lots of these movement leaders who inspire people with their movement techniques to get elected, then really just kind of ignore that as soon as they're elected, right? You think of um, Emmanuel Macron in France, but he was very clever in the way he used a kind of digital campaign and, a, and, a, and the rhetoric of movements to get elected. But, you know, he hasn't been super interested in that as president. And so, you know, what will that mean for his next run, right? Um, because he hasn't really sustained the movement energy that he created in order to win. And he hasn't made the French people necessarily feel like they're more involved in, uh, in, in French government. And that's creating resentment, right? Um, and a sense of disappointment. I actually read recently um, that there was some crowdfunding campaigns for political candidates that were on a proviso. So we will release this money to the candidate that is willing to push this agenda forward or get this p piece of legislation forward. Have you seen? Have you seen those? I have seen those. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And the again, the impact of that of of that form of participation when it comes to governance and legislation and what the future of that will be, whether that'll work, whether we'll be funding pieces of legislation individually now, would that be a good thing? Again, wide arcing question. Not necessarily, not necessarily, right? I mean, this is the, one of the things we explore in the, in the, in the book is, you know, what, what goes viral, what's sexy, what helps people to raise money in crowdfunding is not the same as what is vital, right? So there's that disconnect between the viral and the vital. And, uh, you know, no one's ever going to launch a crowdfunding campaign for like, you know, potholes uh, or fixing basic infrastructure. They're going to, you know, create a crowdfunding campaign for that really sexy idea, right, um, that might not be quite as important as the potholes, uh, but, but which really, you know, need it. And, and then worse still, sometimes the crowdfunding, especially when it's crowdfunding for things that are the business of government, can actually crowd out the government in, in unhelpful ways, right? 
So you actually don't want people crowdfunding for public infrastructure because you you want to create the expectation that that's something that the government does because there's no way that you're going to be able to sustain a, a you know public infrastructure with the crowd. Um, so this is a complicated story, I think. Um, you know, and 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 when and how to get people involved um, isn't simple. If it were, we would we would have figured it out by now. But I think it's yeah. I think it's well worthy of of spinning our brains there as to what it could look like, what would participation look like, what kind of energy current would it create? I just I want to I want to move on from this because you know I could spin here all day. I want to talk about occupying yourself because I think that for me one of the most powerful ideas from the book in terms of something that can be done right now, bottom line driven in organisations in any group is to ask yourself this question, you know, what, how do we occupy ourselves before we become occupied? Just walk through that theory. I think part of the backdrop for that idea is that we live in a world in which transparency will arrive at your doorstep, whether you like it or not, right? So you think about Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, you know, she may not have wanted all those emails to leak, but, you know, you have to now operate on the assumption that, you know, all of those things um, that, that you considered private um, and contained are exposed. So what we ask people to do is kind of the thought experiment, but imagine that your harshest critic was camped out in the heart of your organization and could see all of the ways that your rhetoric might, might differ from your actions or all the inconsistencies and the warts, because they're there for everybody and for every organization. And do that exercise first. Do it before you get occupied. And so occupy yourself first and really think about what you would change if you were, you know, subject to that kind of radical transparency. And that can be a really transformative exercise. Um, and it can be an exercise that helps people to really think about um, whether their actions and their values are lining up in the way that they want them to. Yeah, that piece of advice that seems to come up again and again in terms of I was talking to interviewing a Navy SEAL about fear and and even he was saying drown proofing. You need to drown proof yourself. You need to basically run simulations so that when it happens, you don't panic. You've already got things in place. So, you know, the same thing with new power, drown proof yourself, run simulations, ask yourself these questions. I'm going to ask you my final question now, which isn't the usual question that I would ask last, but I'm just, I'm really curious. What's keeping you up with like keeping you awake right now? With everything that you've seen, everything that you know, all the trends that you're tracking and, and purpose is tracking, what's that 3 a.m. thought that you just can't get to go away? It's the way that extremism of all kinds is empowered by, um, by this new environment that we're in. You know, the, it's the contagion um, of, of, of hate is, you know, and you know, I, I worry about it right now with the coronavirus, you know, as, as worrying as the virus itself is. You know, arguably even more worrying is uh, the contagion, the spread of hate and prejudice that is going to go along with it. And, um, you know, it gives an excuse to the people who want to close borders and who want to discriminate and who want to kind of uh, single out vulnerable populations. It gives them a way to do that. That's very powerful. And we have the tools now for them to spread fear, you know, much more effectively, unfortunately. So those things worry me a lot. Um, and I also worry a lot about the role of the platforms that enable that. And so I do hope that in the years ahead, we have a sort of debate um, about 
how to regulate those platforms in a way that kind of preserves the very best uh, of um, of the benefits of those platforms because they've liberated us in lots of ways. But that really addresses um, the negative social consequences that they're bringing about as well. And what's a what's a, a glimmer of hope uh, or a horizon that you're seeing at the moment, where you, where you're like, if that can if that can happen, it's gonna it's gonna either change everything or offset. I think the counterpoint is you know all these wonderful movements led by often led by young people, but not just young people that embody a very different set of values um, and the skill with which those movements are emerging. I think in the climate space, the youth climate movement in the last couple of years has arguably achieved more than many of the big environmental organizations achieved um, from an advocacy perspective over decades. And so that gives me a lot of hope, um, uh, even at a time which doesn't feel, uh, doesn't feel easy the moment that we're in. Um, but, but the sort of solidarity, the way that love and, um, and compassion and tolerance um, of those values can spread in these new ways, um, you know, that, that gives me a lot of hope. Well, I'm going to end on, I'm going to end on that note. I'm going to end on that ho- note of hope. Thank you so much. And um, I'll have to chat to you again soon. Thank you. It's been great being on. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.